How many of you know who Oswald Chambers was? Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, a great devotional book. Oswald Chambers wrote this. God has, 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 um, God has one desired end for mankind, holiness. His one aim is the production of saints. God is not an eternal blessing machine. Do you like that? He did not come to save men out of pity. He came to save men because he had created them to be holy. The word of God boldly declares in Psalm 99, 9, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For holy is the Lord our God. And in Revelations, in Revelations chapter 4, verse 8, it reads as follows, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is, and the, who is to come. What the psalmist, the Apostle John, Oswald Chambers, all share in common is the fundamental belief that God is holy, that God is holy, and that believers in Christ are to be holy as well. God is holy. Those words seem to echo from some kind of past Bible study, right? Maybe it was a century ago or whatever. You know, we talked about the holiness of God. And in many churches today, the emphasis has shifted from God to the people. The church exists in many congregations not to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, but rather to glorify humans and teach humans how to, how to have a great life on earth. We have forfeited the worth of God's glory in exchange for the refuse and the junk of this world. We have taken the great doctrines of justification by faith and the sovereignty of God and we've replaced it with the sovereignty of man. We have made man sovereign in salvation. Man determines his eternal fate by his decisions and his choices. And God, well, he just quietly acquiesces. Yeah, whatever you want, whatever to make you happy. In 1875, Ernest Henley wrote his famous poem called Invictus, right? I'm sure many of you have heard it. I remember we studied it in, in college. And the poem has become a rallying cry for the unbelievers. That's what it's really become. It's become a rallying cry for the unbelievers. In it, he penned these famous words. It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It reminds me of Frank Sinatra's song, My Way, which I used to love when I was a young rebellious sinner, right? I did it my way. Nobody tells me what to do. You know, this, this atheistic mindset has infiltrated the contemporary church. 
mankind, the human being, the creation of God now has replaced God. It's man that has become the master of his fate. It's man that has become the captain of his soul. And with a little sprinkling of Christianity intermingled in between, man calls our God when needed, and God responds obediently to man when he calls and supplies man with a great life on earth, devoid of suffering, devoid of battling for righteousness, the living, holy, think about it for a moment, the living, holy, transcendent God how has now become subordinate to the highly exalted mankind. And many churches of this day are very guilty of the, the infraction, the charge of Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through, through 23, when Paul said this, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for the image and the form of a corruptible man, for birds, for four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Some churches have left the scriptures to open the door to the lost, but have not provided the solution to their lost estate. Instead, they have placated them in their lostness, coddled them in their sin, and provided them a false hope of eternity while they seek comfort with a sin-tolerating God. Seeker-friendly has now become sinner-friendly. That's what's happened. And worst of all, there's no room for a holy, a righteous, a majestic God. You know, R.C. Sproul said this, and I think he says it very succinctly. He said, a God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, no wrath, is an idol. And I kind of agree with that very much so. A God who is not holy cannot save. You ever thought about that? A God who is not holy cannot save, cannot redeem, cannot transform a life. Only a God can. A.W. Tozer said this, So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down of any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. So today I want to begin an attempt to recapture the majesty and the holiness of God. Not as we imagine him to be. That's a very important point. Not as we imagine God to be. Not as some describe God to be but as the Holy Scriptures declare God is. And we will see three things today. Number one, we will see that our God is highly exalted. Number two, we're going to see our God is worshipped and adored. And number three, we will see indeed that our God is holy. Now, to do so, we're going to use the text found in Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. We won't get through 1 through 7 today. We'll probably get through 1 through 3. 
So open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. Now I'll give you a little bit of background to the text, some historical background to the text. The year 740 B.C., this is the year that King Uzziah dies. Judah, the southern kingdom, was in decline. What do I mean it was in decline? Is that Judah had fallen away from the worship of the true and living God under Uzziah's reign. Why did that happen? Because under Uzziah's reign, Judah became very prosperous. What happens when people become very prosperous? They put faith and confidence in what they have and what they own, and they have a general, a general tendency to drift from the things of God. This has happened here. If you look over in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1, and you look at verses 4 through 7. Here are the words of the prophet Isaiah, last sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. This is the word of God that came to the prophet Isaiah regarding Judah. If you look down at verse 9, it says, Unless the Lord of hosts um, had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? So in their prosperity, they drifted away from the things of God. And not only that, but God was not pleased with their false worship. If you look at verse 11 in chapter 1, verse 11 reads as follows. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. So here we see that the Lord, even though they were moving far and far away from the Lord, they didn't believe they were moving far and far away from the Lord, so they did the obligatory worship, obligatory worship. What's that? That's tradition. That's formalism, right? They were engaged in that formalism. They were engaged in that tradition. But I want to show you something here that's just so amazing. Listen to the pleading heart of God. So we heard these words coming from God, and they're rather strong words, right, to the people. But listen to the heart of God. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Verse 18 of chapter 1. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. How merciful, how glorious is God that despite an open rebelliousness of his people, yet God would still extend the arm of grace for those who turn from their sins and turn to Christ. Unless you think that holiness is sinlessness, which it is not, God extends to this day his hand of mercy, calling men and women to come and repent and be saved. It matters not what happened in the past. It matters today where your heart might be. And then as you continue to go further, we don't have to turn there, we don't have the time, but if you 
Isaiah uh, chapter 5, I preached that many years ago, the parable of the vineyard. We see the prophecy of a nation who has turned their back on God. And by the way, if you want interesting reading, read Isaiah chapter 5 and think about the current state of our nation today. But here in chapter 6, and that's where we're going to focus today, here in chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of God. And the first thing that he sees in the vision, God is high and exalted. Look at verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. So Isaiah, despite the death of one sovereign, Uzziah, now Isaiah enters in, and God is going to show him not the sovereign one of Israel, not a sovereign king. God is going to show him the sovereign of sovereigns. And he does so right here. King Uzziah has died. And I'll tell you something about King Uzziah, just an FYI. By and large, he served 52 years on the throne of Judah. He came into power when he was 16, right about to turn 17. During his reign, Judah prospered, prospered tremendously, and he did continue to teach the ways of God. But his ending wasn't good. His ending, Uzziah, one day looks out and he says, wow, look at how prosperous I made this nation. Look at how great. So he takes it upon himself to offer incense upon the altar of God, which was reserved only for the priest. And so a priest named Azariah goes to confront him, and he says, you can't do this. You can't do this. And 80 other priests say, King, you can't do this. Well, he gets enraged. How dare they tell me I can't do this? And as he goes to the altar with the censer, he takes the censer and he's about to put it on the altar and he is stricken with leprosy. And Uzziah will die of leprosy. That's what he will die of. So he will die cast off. For the most part, he was good as a king for the nation. But then he took it one, one step further, right? And so the first thing that we see here, and I want to call your attention to in verse 1, is I saw the Lord. And I want you to note the word Lord. You'll see it is in a capital L with lowercase o-r-d. Now, we know, as you study the text, that this is the Hebrew word for the name of God, which is Adonai. And Adonai means God the Sovereign One. So where you see in the Old Testament the term Lord with a capital L, lowercase r-d, you're seeing the Hebrew word Adonai which always refers to the sovereign God. The sovereign God, right? So we see this right out here. I saw the Lord, right? 
And it's the same, by the way, from those of you who've been participating on Tuesday night. I, I made this point several weeks ago when we were studying uh, Philippians chapter 2.11, right? And I says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, capital L, lowercase rd. And I said to you, that is synonymous with the Hebrew word Adonai, which means that Jesus Christ is the sovereign of sovereigns. That's what the writer Paul puts in there. That's just a, a freebie. I'll throw that one out for free. And notice how he sees the Lord. Notice how he sees the sovereign one. He is what? He is seated on the throne. What throne is this? It is the throne of God in heaven. The scene is, is spoken of in other areas of Scripture, some additional Scriptures. You could write them down, but number one is, is, is Psalm 11.4. The Lord, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is, is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of man. The prophet Daniel saw a similar scene in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white like snow, and his hair a head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. John saw this in Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. He says, Immediately I was in the Spirit. Behold, the throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. He goes on in verse 5 and says, And from the throne proceeds flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Isaiah says, I saw the sovereign of sovereigns. I saw Adonai. And I saw Adonai seated on his throne. And I want you to note something here. Note that God is not pacing. God is not walking back and forth. God is not anxious. But in the midst of Judah's calamity, in the midst of Judah's rebellion, what is God doing? He is seated. He is seated on the throne. He is sovereign. Everything works according to the counsel of his will. There is no panic in the throne room of heaven. Sometimes I think believers think that, you know, God's up there in heaven and someone bursts in, an angel bursts in and says, Do you know that the Russians invaded the Ukraine? Did you know that Iran is doing this? Did you know? And it's like, come on, man. Everything works according to the counsel of his will. Listen, this is the God. One of the things I really want to be able to do is strip away the earthly romanticisms that we put toward God, and let's look at God as he is described in his word. And here God is described as seated on the throne in a position of decision, in a position of sovereignty, in a position of power. This is the God we serve. 
And Isaiah says another word there. I saw the Lord on a throne, and he was lofty and exalted. That word lofty, to be high. Herein we see the majesty of God. How is he described? He is described as lofty. He is described as exalted. This translates to being raised high. That's the the literal translation. God is exalted. God is lifted up in position. And in this case, God is in the highest heights. There's nothing beyond that. Within the highest heights, He has the highest rank. God is the exalted one, the raised one. In Job 36, 22, you don't have to turn there, but Elio, uh, Job's friend, says this, Behold, God is exalted in power. And boy, that is a true statement. God is indeed exalted in power. In Psalm 47, 9, the psalmist writes, The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God, for he is highly exalted. What that means is he is raised higher than all things. God is supreme. God is preeminent. You can't get past God to get to something else. It starts with God. It ends with God. And it's interesting to note that the Apostle John, quoting Isaiah chapter 6 states that the glory that uh, the prophet Isaiah saw was really Christ. A pre-New Testament appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, which we call a Christophany. If you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, John chapter 12, verses 40 to 41. John records this, Jesus, he he has blinded their eyes. He is now quoting from Isaiah 6, 11. This is where the text comes from. He has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their hearts so that they will not see with their eyes and understand with their heart and be converted. And so I will not heal them. This is the quote from the Old Testament. These things Isaiah said, This is John writing, because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now the question is, who is the him? Who is the him that John is referring to? Well, we see that the him is Christ and clearly John is speaking about Jesus Christ because in John 12, 41 gives us the context when John writes that many of the leaders were believing in Jesus. Him, a clear reference to Christ. So Isaiah sees the Lord. He sees him seated on the throne. He sees him in an exalted, elevated position. And he adds one more comment. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And the train of his robe is the hem of his robe. So imagine the picture after Uzziah's death the vision that Isaiah is seeing. 
He's not seeing a God who worries. He's not seeing a God that has to react. He is seeing the majestic, glorious God. Now, I want to I want to challenge you today because I want you to get this. I really want you to get this. Is that how you see God? Is that how we see God? Do we see Him high and exalted, lifted up, fully in control of all things? Do we see God running to and fro within the heavens, responding to request after request after request? Do we see a God that is dictated to? Is our God one of those gods that, you know, jumps the minute that we we ask of Him and is, is so interested in fulfilling our needs? Or do we see a sovereign, supernatural, majestic holy, righteous, glorious God seated on the throne and despite all the chaos that we see in the world and perhaps all the chaos that is occurring in our life, do we indeed believe that he will indeed work all things for good for those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose? That he indeed does among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of earth as he pleases, and that there is no one who can say to him, what have you done, God? Do we see a God that we have to inform him and tell him like many do in their prayers, God, you need to do this, and Lord, you know I need this, and you know I need that, and you know I need the other thing. Or do we truly believe in a God that is sovereign, exalted, lifted up, who knows what indeed is best? As Job said, he knows the path that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth pure as gold. We see a God here that is high and exalted, And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this indeed is your God. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, as we look at the rest of the text, take heart, for our God reigns. He doesn't exist. He reigns. He rules with authority and power. So we see that our God is high and exalted. Let's look at verse 2. Here we're going to see our God is worshipped and adored. The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And the first thing we're confronted with is this word seraphim. Who are the seraphim? Well, these are angelic beings. They are the guardian of God's holiness. They are at the throne and above the throne. Not above God in rank, but they are the guardians of the holiness of God. These are created creatures, majestic in power. And they possess, we see in Revelations chapter 4, they possess certain human features. They have a face. In Revelation chapter 4, it's described as full of eyes. Right? But they have wings. And these are six-winged creatures. And Isaiah describes them. 
He says, with two wings, they cover their face. Isn't that interesting? Here they are at the throne room of God, and yet they need to use two wings to cover their face. That's because they too are in awe of God. And the brilliance, the effulgence of God's glory that they too must cover their eyes at the holiness of God. They dare not gaze at the glory of God. Remember when we were doing our study of heaven? And I kept making the point, hey, hey, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when you get to heaven, guess what? You're going to be able to see God as he is. You're going to be able to see him unveiled, unhindered. There'll be no physical limitations. There'll be no spiritual limitations. We will look on him and we will see him as he is. We will see the resurrected Jesus Christ just as he is. And we will see the seraphim in the heavens with two wings covering their eyes. Notice what else. They have two wings covering their eyes. And with two wings, they cover their feet. And this is an acknowledgement, by the way, that they are on holy ground. Remember Exodus chapter 3? when Moses is drawn to the burning bush and he's walking and he's walking. He says, I've got to see this thing that the Lord has made. Why is this bush burning but it is not consumed? And in verses 2 through 5, he goes up and then the Lord goes, Moses, stop. Remove your sandals. For the place you stand is what? Holy ground. Even the seraphim acknowledge the holiness of where they are. So with two wings, they cover their face, their eyes. With two wings, they cover their feet because they are on holy ground. And then with the last two, they fly. Now, what's significant about this is that all the verb tenses used here are in the imperfect tense. What that simply means is this. They are continually doing this. This doesn't stop. They're continually doing this. These angels. So we see that God is, is worshipped and adored. They dare not look upon the holiness of God. They dare not tread upon the throne room of God. And they fly back and forth and back and forth, but it doesn't end there as we see in verse 3 because now we see that indeed they define God and they define God as holy. Look at verse 3. And one called out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So as they're flying back and forth, one is crying out to another. This is they call an antiphonal song, right? Where one says a chorus, the other responds with a chorus. They're calling out one after another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And now I call your attention to that word Lord there. Notice that that word there is in all caps. It is not uppercase with some lowercase. And this is the name of God. This is Yahweh. This is the hallowed name of God. 
Notice they call out, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. And the angels declare that the sovereign one is indeed Yahweh. And note they don't cry out, by the way. They don't cry out that God, that Yahweh, notice this. They don't cry out that he is love, love, love. And they don't cry out that he is mercy, 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 nor righteous, righteous, righteous. Out of all the attributes of God, what do they cry? What do they declare? What is declared in heaven? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What does this mean? What does this mean? What does the term holy mean? Well, in short, the term holy means sacred. That's really what it means, sacred. It's a sacredness beyond what we can humanly comprehend. God is sacred. God is holy. And he is for several reasons. Number one, One of the reasons implied in this holiness is God is separate. He is separate. God is unique. He is unique in his very essence, in his very nature. God is unique in that God is not like human beings. I want you to remember this. God is not like human beings. God is unique in that he is separate from sin And God is separate from any external influences. You know why we as believers sin? Because we're not separate. Because we can be influences. We can be influenced. That external things can bring about favorable or unfavorable responses from us. There is no external force that can intrude upon God. He is not influenced by anything external. God is pure. And in His purity, there is no sin and there is no sin nature. God is pure. God is holy because God is separate, and God is separate because God cannot be influenced from the outside. God is pure. He cannot sin. He cannot know sin. He can't think unsinfully. He cannot think sinfully, and therefore there is no temptation that can tempt God to fail. He is perfect. He is complete. He is high and exalted. His purity is above fallenness. His purity is above temptation. And his purity is above sin. That's the first reason. The second reason is God is majestic in his holiness. Let me say that again. God is majestic in his holiness and what that means is his majesty is unique unto god 
And God's majesty, another way to say it, is one of a kind. It is one of a kind. His purity. His purity is morally pure. His purity is ethically pure. And that in and of itself is unique to God. God is the creator, and in holiness, he created all there is, and he created it in purity and in truth. So God is separate. God is majestic in holiness. Now listen, this is important. This is really important. Because God is holy, therefore what God decrees, what God says, is to be regarded as holy, sacred. It's to be regarded as sacred, righteous, and true. What does that mean to us? That means what God says we as believers in Christ can depend upon. It is sacred. Do you look at the Word of God? Do you look at the Word of God and say, this book is sacred? Some people say, that's just a book. It's not just a book. It is the divinely inspired Word of God. And what it contains is sacred truth. You know, some people will go, you know, some people might have an audience with the Queen of England, or some people might have an audience with the President. Well, scratch that. Some people might have an audience with another king or another sovereign. And they'll walk away in awe. I, I met the Queen of England. Oh, I was in Buckingham Palace. What a beautiful place. Uh, I, met, I met this person who's an elected official. I met, I met that person. And they walk away in awe. And they go, oh my goodness. And, you know, they, they take a piece of paper and the guy signs it or the gal signs it. It says, Queen of England, best wishes to my best bud. You know, Queen Elizabeth, right? And, and they hold these things and they encase them in glass. And, and this was when I was in England and I met the queen and I met the secretary of state and I met the prime minister. And they revere and they hold those objects to be sacred. My goodness, church, God has given us his word. He's given us his book. God has revealed himself, not in his entirety. God has revealed himself in spirit and truth contained in this book. Look, my Bible right on the front says, Holy Bible, sacred Bible, sacred are the words of God. Why, why, why would anyone want to ignore the word of God? Why would no one want to devour this word? Why doesn't people, I, I, I don't understand it. In it is life. You want to know what God is? Open the Bible. Read his word. God does indeed still speak through the word of God. So because God is holy, what God decrees, what God said is to be regarded as holy and sacred, righteous and true, and only a holy and righteous God can demand from his people holiness. First Peter, he writes about this in 1 Peter chapter uh, 1, verses 
15 and 16. He makes a very famous statement that sometimes gets misconstrued by many. He says this, But like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy as I am holy. John MacArthur makes this great statement. John MacArthur makes this great statement. In the salvation of sinners, the holiness and righteousness of God are revealed because in salvation, God effectively judges sin. Notice this. He judges sin and He imputes righteousness to people so that He can accept them as holy without compromising his essential holiness and righteousness. If it were not for Christ on the cross, if it was not for the atoning death of Christ, why did Christ die on the cross? Because he looked at people and said, I feel so sorry for them. You know, they're all going to hell. No, God had decreed in the foundations in eternity past, Jesus, you are going to atone for my people. You are going to atone for my elect. You will take the cross and offer yourself as, as, as an atonement for sin. And Jesus Christ said, yes, Father, I will indeed do that. I will fulfill your law to the to the letter, to the jot, to the tittle. I will fulfill it completely. God decreed, and it was done. And that word was holy and righteous and true. And because God decreed it, and because Christ fulfilled it, sinful people like me can't be made righteous before God. That's not even, listen, that's not even plausible in my mind if I had to conjure that up. Church believers in Christ, you are a believer here in Christ. We serve a holy, majestic, righteous, living God who is perfect in all of His ways, righteous in all of His deeds, impervious to outside influence, acts according to his own will, whose every decision and declaration are perfect, who knows no impurity in sin, who dwells in unapproachable splendor, whose glory fills the earth and all of creation, who one day every believer in Jesus Christ, those who have entrusted themselves by grace and faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross, get this, will worship unhindered, unveiled, face-to-face, in purity, in holiness, made pure by the blood of Jesus Christ. Believers will gather with the saints of old and all believers who have gone before us. Here's the best part with gazing eyes upon the glorious one with heads bowed and hands raised, with emotions exploding within us and without us. Believers will cry out with the seraphim. We're going to cry out with the seraphim. And we're going to cry out with the saints. And we're going to cry out with every created thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
What a day that's going to be. Man, it's going to top anything you could ever have conjured up on this earth. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3, says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. Isn't that a great, wait, isn't that a great thing? If you are in Christ, if you have come to Christ in repentance and faith, guess what? For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And here John writes in his epistle, Beloved, now we are the children of God. You know, we're not all children of God. We're all creations of God. But those who have entrusted themselves, who have come to faith in, in Christ Jesus, who have repented of their sins and trust Christ and Christ alone for their salvation, we are indeed the children of God. It says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not appeared yet what it, we shall be. But we know this. That when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And notice these last words. In everyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself, just as he is pure. Is that where your hope is? Is your hope in Christ? Is your hope in in something else is your hope in your bank account is your hope in your job is your hope in another person is your hope in me if it is get it out of me because i i'll let you down at some point our hope is only to be in christ listen god's holiness is not just the static attribute of god what do i mean by that it's just not another thing we we check off the list and say god's holy god's righteous God's just. It's not a static thing. It's not something that's just taught in theology classes. I hope you get this. Listen, God's holiness is at the essence of our faith. Without God being holy, we have no faith. I hope you understand that. God's holiness is at the essence of our faith. Every other attribute of God derives itself from the holiness of God. What do I mean? God's righteousness is perfect righteousness. Why? Because God is holy. It is not arbitrary righteousness. It is not situational righteousness as we see in the world today. If, if God could be influenced from outside sources, then that would be situational righteousness. So God's righteousness upon which we, de uh, we depend upon to be believers in Christ is totally dependent upon God's holiness. God's mercy is perfect mercy because God's holiness and his intolerance of sin. God's anger is perfect anger because God is holy and God cannot tolerate sin. Therefore, God is righteous in his anger. God's anger is not capricious like our anger. Our anger is generated for the most part because we are tainted by pride. We are tainted by self-interest. Yet God's anger is holy, righteous, and just. And God's love 
is perfect love. Perfect love. Because it's without sin or self-interest. It's predicated upon his attributes. When God loves, he loves perfectly. God's perfect love bears no record of wrong. Which is why God offers salvation to repentant sinners and is able to forgive every transgression and offer eternal life to those who come to him in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So you might be asking yourself, okay, I get it. But what does this have to do with me and how can I use this truth in my life? Paris Reedhead was a great American preacher of the 20th century. And he made this statement. If I had my way, I would declare a moratorium on public preaching of the plan of salvation, he puts in quote, in America for one to two years. Then I would call on everyone who has use of the airways and the pulpits to preach the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the law of God until sinners would cry out, what must I do to be saved? This nation has had enough. Enough of easy believism, enough of... Uh, the God that we imagine and we conjure up in our mind and, and we say, well, God is like this and God is like that. Enough. Holiness. Our God is holy, majestic in power. Our God is able to save to the utmost all who come to Him in repentance and faith because He is holy. And in order for revival to come to American churches, we do not need better technique. And we do not need political movements. There's a lot of political movements in the church of God getting ready for the midterm elections, getting ready for the presidential election, spreading their news. We don't need another man in the White House. It's not going to make it right. Our nation is a nation that is in sin to such a degree we make Sodom and Gomorrah look like a kindergarten class. You're not righteous when a nation murders 60 million babies. You're not righteous when we redefine marriage and we redefine everything, the institutions that God had laid down in the very beginning of creation. We do not need political movements. We do not need better music. We do not need bigger buildings and, and more educated ministers. My goodness, we have more Christian colleges, more seminaries, more books, more publications, no, more podcasts, more YouTube videos than anything else. Matter of fact, that's a hindrance to the church today because a lot of people are being discipled by YouTube and they listen to one nut after another nut and they get all convoluted in their theology. For revival to come back to America, we need those who profess as believers in Christ to be confronted with 
the holiness of God. Then we will see and then we will know who God really is. Then we will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then we will, we will, God will be pleased with his church. He will be pleased with his children. And then God will move in the hearts and in the lives of believers. Then there will be power once again in the pulpit. Power in your individual lives. Because your heart pants after God. A lot of Christians sit in churches today and they're not satisfied. What did Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be satisfied. Next week we're going to continue to look at the holiness of God. And Isaiah's response when confronted with it, that hopefully it will be our response and that the glory of God will, be, will fill the earth till all the earth is filled with the glory of God. Join with me in prayer. Father, we bless you. And Father, we must repent. We must repent. Because I know all of us are guilty of imaginations and thoughts, maybe not intentional, Father, but maybe a little bit polluted from the world. God, that we would see you as holy. God, that you would be sacred to us, O oh God. That we would know, Lord God, your truth. That, Father, Lord God, that you would fill us with your presence. And as we deep dive, Lord, as we go into this study, as we attempt to recapture the majesty and the holiness of God, that you, O righteous and O merciful God, would extend your hand to convict. That you, O God, would extend your hand to exhort. That you, O God, would extend your hand to reprove, to admonish, and to encourage. And it would be said about this church, not how big it is, not how small it is, not what influence it has in the world, but it would be said about this church that those men and women fear God, love God, know God, and are known by their God. We ask you for this in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen and amen. Bless God.